show about sports, art, and the creative space they share. My name is Abigail Smithson, and as always, I am your host. My guest today is Boston-based artist Maria Multaney. This interview has been a while in the making because back in 2017, I was a resident at Court 13 Arts in New Orleans, and I spent a lot of my time there making drawings of basketball nets. And this was right after I'd finished collecting a lot of basketball nets in Baton Rouge. So I was still kind of in the mindset of trying to collect them and trade them out and all of that. And some people that had just moved to New Orleans from Boston and were working at the residency told me that they had a friend in Boston who had been crocheting her own basketball nets to hang at different hoops around the city that needed new nets. And that was such an interesting idea to me because up until that point, I had really been been working just with uh, mass-produced basketball nets that I would order uh, in bulk online, and to think about someone handcrafting the basketball net was so excited to me, so exciting to me. So flash forward to now, uh, recently when I I found Maria's work and I made the connection that she might be the person they had been referring to, and that I wanted to invite her on the podcast. And it's just so exciting that um, that she came on and we had the chance to talk about her background and practice and the differences and similarities in our work and her collective new craft, Artists in Action, also known as NCAA. And I love this playing off the iconic acronym meant for college sports. Um, and this is a group that creates conceptual crafts in response to sports at every level and in many places. Um, and as they state in their manifesto, We address the limitations of a consumer culture that has fortified productive recreational engagement to crippling entertainment industries. With these things in mind, we present diverse voices, perspectives, and bits of history that we weave together a complex network of influences. So they're really using craft as a way to um, respond to, to the sort of product that is sports. And I love this idea. We really get into it in the interview. I really hope you guys enjoy uh, our discussion. And I also just want to say what an amazing thing it is that um, I just love sort of the relationships that I've made through this podcast. It's really been a gift to get to talk to so many different people and get to form friendships, sometimes with people I've never met in person, but I still feel connected to them through their art. And I just, yeah, I, I hope to someday meet everyone in person. But until then, it's like this is just a wonderful way to feel, to grow my circle of people and just to feel um, more connected to to what other people are making. So yeah, I'm just so appreciative. And thank you so much for listening. As always, please share, rate, review, subscribe, do all the things that help the podcast. I appreciate it so much. Okay, here we go. So Maria, I'm so glad you're on the podcast. I feel like uh, I found a bit of an art slash sports soulmate. And I'm just gonna I'm ready to, to talk about a lot of stuff. Um, so I think it's so helpful if we could start by you just maybe describing your, uh, relationship to sports before starting to make your artwork about sports and how that was kind of a part of your life before, um, interweaving those two things. Yeah, definitely. Um, well, I feel like sports were growing up from about, like I started playing competitive sports. I, I'm pretty sure, yeah, at age seven and I started with cross country and maybe I think basketball, even at that age too. And it was like, you know, 
85 at least percent of my life until I was, you know, about 18 or in, mm-hmm. you know, in my teens. Um, and, you know, it was just like a big part of my family. Um, I grew up in Nashville, Tennessee and, you know, sports, I mean, I think, I think every, um, community across the country has like its own kind of special relationship to sports, but like in the South athletics are huge. Also like, um, in my particular, uh, city, um, like high school and college sports were huge because we didn't have, um, I mean, now we do have actually a few pro sports teams, right. um, like the predators and, but, um, and the Titans and, but, um, but we didn't, we didn't have, um, professional sports teams at the time. So like, um, yeah, high school sports and college sports were huge, huge, huge. And, um, you know, like I went to, uh, Pat Summit girls basketball. Yeah. <laughs> I just read um, her biography. Oh, cool. Yeah. I, I would love to do that. I need to make time to do that. Um, yeah. Um, and yeah, so I think also like, I think also being a, a young girl playing basketball in Tennessee is also kind of like a special recipe or a special thing. Um, but, uh, yeah, it was like, you know, I mean, so basketball was kind of always number one in a lot of ways. And like, mm-hmm. it kind of went with my identity, but I did play like softball and soccer and, um, but well, volleyball is actually one of my favorite sports. Um, and yeah, like track and like a bunch of other sports and two seasons a year. And I mean, it was just crazy. So it was kind of like my whole life. Um, and I, uh, I did enjoy it a lot. Um, cause I, I like being active and I like the social aspect of it. And everything. But, you know, I think with a lot of people, there's still a lot of this pressure folded into it. And I always was kind of a sensitive kid. Like I, you know, I'm like an artist deep down and, um, and we can talk about some of this astrologically <laughs> later too, which is kind of fun to do, but sure. like I have an Aries, I have an Aries moon, which is a very competitive, like energetic, uh, youthful type sign, which would totally be an athlete. And I'm a Libra. So I believe in like balance and fairness and, sort of like soft emotional things and beautiful things. So I'm a little split between those. So in some ways, um, even though sports were like my life and I got a lot of a lot of life and power from them, there was still also a lot of pressure and and things, there were ways um, that I didn't feel like I was fully expressing myself. But one thing that I think is interesting to tell people is, um, well, for one thing, my mother, who is now an incredible tennis player, she's, um, she's, yeah, she's, um, in like the, uh, USTA, um, like senior team. Yeah. And she plays against people that are like half her age and she's amazing. (laughs) (laughs) Um, but she, you know, growing up, she wasn't, she grew up on a farm in rural Tennessee and she wasn't allowed to try out for sports because they said she was like too skinny, too scrawny, like couldn't even, they just didn't even believe she had like the might in her. Um, and as a, you know, a skinny scrawny kid that was swallowed by jerseys growing up, I feel, um, you know, I feel like the privilege of being able to play sports. Um, but I also feel this kind of funny pressure because my dad who grew up in Nashville and went to, um, this big Catholic high school that's known for being like in, amazing at sports. Um, like he was playing against people in his teenage years in high school and when I was a kid, I was playing against the daughters of his like high school sports right. rivals. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so there's these like kind of family dynasties that are sort of trying to prove themselves. Sure. Um, and I was like part of that. 
Yeah. <laughs> so it's intense. <laughs> right. Yeah. So that's yeah. That's kind of an intro to some of that. I'd love to talk about how you have brought art and basketball together and also social practice by engaging with local communities just through your work and how that sort of evolved and a bit about your practice as just an artist like how maybe you moved from painting to this way of like this non-traditional not even working in a studio necessarily practice right right um well that's yeah that's a great question because interestingly basketball in a way I did not expect played a big role in that, I think, um, like move from yeah, being a more traditional painter to being, you know, what you might call a social, social practice or um, socially engaged artist. Right. Um, well, so for one thing, I mean, I guess this bridges from our last conversation a bit too, but when I, so when I went to college, I went to, to Boston university, I like went up to Boston and also like, I didn't know, I thought Boston was like the other New York. Like I was just like, I want to get out of Tennessee and go somewhere where, where it's like a city where there's artists or something. Um, And I knew that I had a lot of like self re-education to do. Like I didn't know exactly what it was, but I knew that I knew there were just other things that I needed to learn. Um, And yeah, and I knew I needed to re-educate myself on certain things. So, um, so when I got to Boston, you know, like it's a pretty, um, it's a pretty academic affluent environment up here. And even though, um, you know, college is pretty international, um, like people are from all over the place, but you still get this kind of vibe of, um, of like New England. And I was like, man, I was playing sports all my life and like shooting free throws over and over. And I think these people were reading books all that time. <laughs> <laughs> right. And um, yeah, and I was a little... I was a little self-conscious and I think there's also that like I don't know if anyone has been listening to like the Dolly Parton podcast but um I mean I, it's amazing yeah I have to check it out I've I've been missing it <laughs> yeah well there's it's amazing and it, it wow it's like yeah my it's like my my grandmother was like she told some of the exact same stories that mm. Dolly tells it's crazy um so it's kind of a similar upbringing in a way but um but she talks about um, there's a or there's one episode about kind of how Southerners sometimes feel kind of stupid or like there's a um, there's like a stereotype there, you know, or how sure. like you might try to hide your accent. So there might have been a little bit of that that I'm actually only just realizing, too. But um, but I just felt a little self-conscious. And so I kind of like hid like I kind of hid the sports thing, honestly. And um, I mean, I was always a weirdo. I was always like a, a super emo weirdo artist kid. So it's not like I was like, I don't know. It's not like I presented like a jock all the time or something, but I, but I was kind of like, yeah, I was just trying to be like smarter or make up for like lost time where I wasn't maybe working as much on like art or like reading. So, so that was this interesting thing. And then, um, you know, and I was like painting, making these traditional oil paintings. Um, and sometimes I tell people the story, uh, the, a lot of the people I was studying under were kind of like a couple generations down from abstract expressionists and like the painting program at BU, um, like Philip Gustin and Bryce Martin had been over it for many years. So it has this kind of abstract expressionist legacy that is very male dominated and mm-hmm. like, you know, interesting. And, you know, so I kind of have this love hate with relationship with action painting, which I've been making a lot of work since, like I've been talking about how I'm trying to kind of recontextualize the idea of action painting um, and actually make, 
you know, um, the way that supposedly Pollock, you know, put a, a canvas on the ground and made it an arena in which to act, you know, is the quote. Sure. It's like, I'm, I'm actually trying to make arenas into paintings <laughs> to activate with the body. Mm-hmm. Um, but anyways, uh, but yeah, I mean, you know, I did, I did love painting, but when I got out of school, I'm just, I'm also just like a pretty social person. Like I'm just, I'm driven by people and relationships. Again, very Libra, like, vibes and values um (laughs) (laughs) so I was like I was out of college and I was like working in this like moldy basement in this little neighborhood called Alston um just like painting in the middle of the night and you know feeling a little depressed like I was like I don't know what I'm doing I don't and also my my professor said said you know like you should literally just go into a cave and paint until you're 30 and then come out and try and show which is horrible advice yeah wow that feels a little Um, old school yeah so I so I basically was just like okay I don't know what's going on but I just need to get outside like literally if if I get stuck I need to just go outside because this is bad I don't need I don't need to hold myself up in this case and I'm and I have this history of like moving like it's important to me to move my body and get in my body and like um, become active and respond to my environment. So when I would get stuck, I actually just walked down the street and would shoot free throws. And and I actually hadn't really played, like I had kind of shut off my basketball thing for almost like five years or something. I didn't really play basketball at all. Um, but I, I got a basketball and I was like, I think I just need to go shoot free throws because they also free throws are like the most meditative thing you can do. Like it's, it's like prayer to me. Mm-hmm. And um, and I've made some, I made some early performances where I was like, actually like praying the rosary while shooting free throws, because that's like what I spent my whole childhood doing. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, and then I just like, and then I started like painting houses on this on the sidewalk, like just sitting outside and painting. And just slowly thinking more and more about how I can actually just be outside and make art or make work that is about or for my neighbors um and you know this is like a really funny story but I took a beekeeping class a lot of my work is about is about honeybees as well um way back in like 2009 and um the first net I made I was actually trying to teach myself to crochet because I'd never done it before and I was just trying new media and um I was like I was like, okay, so basketball nets are kind of like diamonds that come off the hoop. But what if they're hexagons? What if like honeybees drew honeycomb off of the rim? Yeah. (laughs) It was like this weird idea. And so I actually made this net that I was like, it was supposed to be like honeycomb. (laughs) And then it just dawned on me that, oh, like, well, my, the hoop that I'm shooting free throws on all the time doesn't have a net. And that sucks. It sucks to play on a hoop that doesn't have a net. Right. So I just like put it up and then it, it was like, you know, the idea just started flowing and I was like, duh, um, I should just start making these and putting them on all the hoops that don't have nets or that I can. Um, so that, yeah, that was kind of the beginning of that. Um, and, you know, I think there was at that t- around that time, people were kind of starting to say social practice, you know, like there were a couple of little program, not little, little, but there were programs popping up on the West Coast that were actually like grad programs for social practice. And so it was becoming a little bit more part of the conversation. Mm-hmm. Um, like maybe not, maybe people kind of moving out of talking about re- relational aesthetics and saying social practice. Um, so I started going to like creative time conferences and, um, 
common field conferences and um, uh, sorry, the other Jen Jealous Ray's conference. Um, anyways, uh, I'll think of it later. But um, yeah, so I think I, so then I did insert myself in that world of thinking sure. about. Yeah, like in, engaging with the environment, which was cool because I think I got a quick um, intro into conversations about like responsibility and, um, you know, like Claire Bishop's kind of critiques of how social practice can go wrong. Mm-hmm. So um, I think all the while I I still maintain like I still have like formal aesthetic kind of traditional art interests and most of the artists that I look to and am am inspired by are more um, of those types of artists, um, particularly like artists from the Bauhaus and artists from Black Mountain College and um, I mean, you know, Helma Af Klint and Agnes Martin um, and Louise Bourgeois and all of those are like my, you know, my my goddesses. Um, But I, I just love being able to make with and for my community and look to people that are making work today and engaging with their communities today and using that as inspiration instead of like having to know every gallery or, you know, like I kind of pick, I kind of pick and choose from the canon, but I'm not, I'm not um, too weighed down by some of that, if that makes sense. Yes. And it seems like for a lot of your work, you want to be working, not just, um, collaboratively like with a place or with a group of people but that you want to work as a team with other other people that are sort of um maybe thinking along the same lines but might bring a different skill or a different idea to the work yeah I just like I just am motivated by other people and sharing and like I just always think things are more fun and powerful um I mean I love making work alone and I'm actually trying to do a little bit more of that just for like the you know even kind of meditative self reflexive um gifts of of that style of working but um but yeah it's like um I just I just get so excited when I meet other people who have similar interests and I also think like you were saying when you first called me about the podcast it's like especially when you're talking about sports, it's like, how can we change the conversations about sports and talk more about the collective? And of course, sports are always going to be competitive, but how can we push back on like the competitive um, pressures that capitalism puts on the, um, the especially like commercial industrial athletic world mm-hmm. um, and actually, you know, reclaim some of the healthier um, values and like healthier results of being, being an athlete. Right. Or, or even just being a, I mean, I'm sure we'll get into talking about this, but I'm, I'm just all about like the liberation of recreation, you know, and playing in public space and sharing space and not focusing so much on professional sports. Right. And I think that the, the way that professional sports, um, and I mean, maybe sports in general, have evolved is that there's like certain people that belong and then there's other people that are, you know, like on the sidelines or the fans or whatever. And I Mm -hmm. think that what I appreciate about your work and about, I mean, I think some of the things I've been thinking about lately is that how the fan experience should not be a passive one. And if we're excited by what we see, either if it's on, you know, like a soccer field or, um, 
baseball field or basketball court, whatever it is, it's like, how can we respond to the thing that excited us with something equally exciting? Um, totally. And I, mean, I don't think that has to be in real time that I see something incredible and I do something incredible right then. But I think that it's this idea of like, how do I interpret that incredible thing that I saw this person do whether it's like this amazing no-look pass or this wild catch or this crazy dunk, how do I take all of that sort of power and humanity and creative expression and like interpret it through myself into something that I make or contribute? And that I think makes me feel better about you know, the experience of, of being a spectator, if I know that I will produce something that that I attempt to meet the thing that I love. Totally. And yeah, I mean, that's like one of our, we have, you know, I have a, a few little, um, uh, not exactly buzzwords, but there's a few different relationships I talk a lot about that we're addressing with, in, with the new craft artists in action and the NCAA work. Um, and we talk about participation versus spectatorship as being one of the, the biggest parts. And like even using that, the game, the space of the game or the match as a platform. I mean, you know, people do all kinds of creative things with like signage um, there, you know, there's just like a lot of painting your faces. That, well, yeah, exactly. Um, but there's a lot of really creative things that happen in the game. And that's like kind of another thing that I talk about is, you know, I, I played sports really seriously as a kid, but I was always kind of like, um, I always felt sort of like the mascot and the team captain or whatever. Um, like I loved, I loved all the, the other things that you insert into the game. I love, sure. we did so many fun, like stomp clapping rhythms and, um, there's like lots of chants and singing. I mean, I loved in softball, we had so many chants and those were so fun to me. Yeah, um, and the there's marching so many bands, parts of the game. Like, oh my God. I, I love mean, marching bands. Though, that yeah. sort of marriage between like marching bands and, and college football. And I mean, college sports, even though I know that there's a lot of problems with college sports. Um, sure. It's sure. like, I just, it's a beautiful, wonderful match. <laughs> I oh, mean, totally. I just, the marching bands are absolutely amazing. I know when I hear those like those drums, it's yeah. like I don't know. It's it surprises me because in some ways like football culture is like a little triggering to me because it was just like too much of a part of my childhood. Sure. But still I hear that marching band like noise and I'm like, Oh, it's fall, you know, like I'm right. we're celebrating. Yeah, it's I love marching bands. Oh totally. Yeah. And color guard, I mean, in the next life I will be like some kind of color sure, guard yeah. <laughs> right yeah. yeah there is so many things that just are part of like that are already built into the game that are really just wonderful sort of additions to what actually just happens when you play yes yeah so how your experience now of having painted several basketball courts in Massachusetts um I'm wondering how th those opportunities came about and how you how you have chosen to paint them, like how, how you sort of worked with the communities or um, mm -hmm. chose your compositions and your colors and things like that and, and created sort of a canvas out of the court. Okay, yeah, definitely. Um, well, for one thing, I mean, I, I guess I also should just put a little push a little nod to Massachusetts in general because, you know, I, I often 
like, I mean, it's funny now I've lived here as long as I lived in Tennessee. Um, and it's not um, like Boston is not a place that many people gravitate to. And it, there's some things about it. Like you always kind of feel a little bit of that old veil of Puritanism. And it's a little intense, but I also kind of love some of this weird old history. Mm-hmm. And it feels like there's a lot of kind of answers here about like what people hoped for this country to be and you know things that we destroyed in that process too and like there's just a lot of um like I don't know like darkness and light or um there's just a lot of layers here and and I find them just really interesting like even when they're inspiring and even when they're upsetting I just it's like I can't leave this place because I keep uncovering these layers and, you know, it's just interesting that basketball was invented in Massachusetts, you right. know. Right, yes, the history there. <laughs> um, and women's basketball, um, well, mm-hmm. one of the first games of women's basketball was played in Massachusetts as well as, as right. the men's game starting, yeah. Yeah, in Smith College, and yeah, yeah. And um, yeah, so it's like, it's interesting. And, you know, and the first hoop was a peach basket, and that's a big part of the the, the basketball networks project is like, you know, thinking about the roots of basketball and how um, uh, it's like um, this sort of resourceful or recycled, um, uh, you know, object or like this resourceful approach with a recycled object, right. you know, becomes this new game. And like, I think that lends itself to ways that people recreate and reinvent the game for themselves, like how they decide to change it based on what they have access to um, or what they're interested in. Um, so like that's, so that's one thing too, is like, we're kind of inserting ourselves in a cycle, like kind of a historical cycle and trying to reach back to the past for some of the interesting values. Like why were people interested in basketball in the first place? And there were these kind of like ethical, spiritual, um, influences, but then of course, like we said, problematic colonial, um, contexts as well. And so how can we like move forward with some of those like early values, but in like a radical way that busts the game open for people that have felt excluded from it. Um, and also like in putting nets on empty hoops, it's like, we're inserting ourselves literally in just a, um, a natural cycle of like public fiber or public art, you know, like Mm -hmm. these nets exist and they're inevitably they're inevitably going to break down, even if it's an industrial strong net. That's the whole that's the whole reason you see these like snaggle tooth hoops with nets hanging from them, you know. Right. Um, so it's like inserting um, a handmade thing sort of in that process. So it speaks a bit also to the history of fiber art in the area and just a lot of these different industrial histories and labor, you know, histories of labor movements and. So that so for that reason, I just think it's kind of cool that all my basketball courts have been in Massachusetts. Um, and like each each one has a flavor of the history of that city. Each or each one um, definitely references some of the history mm-hmm. of that city. Um, and I've been wanting to paint them for a long time. It's kind of funny that now it's it's become a thing, and it's like celebrated and people are painting them all the time because for years I was just like oh I want to do a whole court I want to do the whole thing I want to do the backboard and the net and the court and everything and people just um yeah just didn't they were like you can't you can't do that you know it's not going to last or people will fall while they're playing basketball people are always like oh they're going to get distracted and I'm like right maybe but um 
I don't know if they're distracted <laughs> by all the cracks in the ground. Totally. Uh, right. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, so it was just like this thing that I was like, man, I don't know if this is ever going to happen, but I really want to do it. And then uh, I finally in like 2000, um, well, in 2015, a friend rented out this um, former like um, car, uh, like automotive shop that w- was going to be torn down. And so we were going to build, you know, giant condo on it or whatever. And he was renting it out in between to have it be a little community center and um and he asked if i wanted to paint the driveway so that was really cool because i was like yes okay we can at least experiment with these materials and see how it works so we painted our first cord in somerville massachusetts yeah um and then i got a um couple years later or like in yeah 2016 to 17 i think um i got a artist in residence position or i became an artist in residence for the city of boston which is a cool new program that's still going where um, they would select a few artists and pair you with a youth organization or Mm. community center for like eight months and you'd work with them and just um, produce a project at the end. So first of all, I, I'm, I try to be very flexible about my social projects. Like I often do have some visions and prompts that I try to enter with. Um, But I, I think it's really important to be like flexible and open when you're working with communities and not have too much of a, like, Oh, this is what's going to happen. Right. right? Cause I don't think that's fair or successful. And so I, I kind of thought uh, maybe we'll do a basketball court because my particular um, community center had like a huge basketball program and that was just like a, a big deal to them. So I definitely started off by um, doing, you know, a bunch of, art classes and icebreakers, which are really fun. I mean, we do things like, let's talk about our dream mascots. Yeah. You know, (laughs) I mean, it's almost like saying your spirit animal, which I know is not an appropriate phrase, but you know, it's like, like, what is a mascot that represents me and what I care about and my identity and my dreams. Mm -hmm. And I try to get them a little bit. I try to kind of get them to let go of some of the ways they already think about sports and the alliances and allegiances they feel like they're supposed to have to certain things that have been sold to them, whether it's a brand or a team or, you know, sure. And, um, and we'll often um, talk about how like, you know, meta world peace changed his name from run our test to world peace and how, you know, his Jersey becomes a message that's, that's going up and down the court um, among all of these sort of more like corporate capitalist messages and so sometimes they'll choose their like what's their their world peace name what like what's a if they were going to change their name to something that they stand up for what would it be yeah that's great (laughs) that's really um yeah that's just a really good sort of analogy or way to to bring them in kids yeah thanks and so sorry it's a little bit of a tangent but you know but so so then we yeah it, it grew into a court then we started designing courts together and um and but you know with all of these other things in mind so um and then that was my final project is um i i pulled together a crew of like adult artists that i knew i could work with because it was daunting i mean i think our first court was um i think it was twenty thousand square feet (laughs) which is just crazy to think about um so i was like oh my gosh i you know i knew i could do it but i didn't really know how um and did tons of research into paint and 
yeah, just like put together a crew and um, of artists that I knew I could work with and trust and that I knew could work well with the the teens and, and the youth as well. And, um, you know, it was fun because that court had been, it was like gray and black. It was, it's in Dorchester next to the um, Perkins, uh, Perkins Community Center. Okay. And um, yeah, and which is also um, a high, uh, a middle school during, during the day, but um the court was like gray and black and it had Red Bull had painted it or paved it and then painted it at one point and they weren't really allowed to um, paint advertising on it. So they, they wrote in the middle of the court, Boston, uh, Boston's got wings because their slogan is like Red Bull gives you wings. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was sort of the most they were allowed to paint. So we, we made these zines before we painted the court and, the prompt was like, well, you know, Red Bull didn't ask us what we think Boston's got. What do we think Boston's got? And so we made these really cute zines called Boston's Got. <laughs> and, <laughs> wow. and the kids were like, Boston's got, you know, style. Boston's got family. Boston's got pride. Boston's got dinero. Like Boston's got all yeah. these things. Um, and so, so there, so we have a bunch of designs um, kind of around the border that were just like, basically I hung all their drawings on the wall and we put up um, chalkboards on the fence um, to let people also like anyone in the neighborhood who wasn't part of the community center, hadn't been part of my classes could just draw things and even make like requests kind of, you know, like draw in little designs. And we said we wouldn't put in like anyone's name or particular messaging or like Mm -hmm. obviously offensive messaging but um but for the most part we just looked at their drawings and we just started kind of like free free drawing them in in the margin area um until it was just full and um and and the kids like helped us paint um too there were certain open paint days that they came and helped us paint but but I also it's really important to me that I leave um people with like a really professional um, sure. you know, finished artwork that will last. Um, so a lot of the painting does happen by adults, but, um, but yeah, it's a really like engaging process and we painted all their words, all their Boston's got words, mm. um, all through the design as well. And in a lot of different languages to, um, folks that live in the community. So that, yeah, that was our first court in Dorchester. And, um, you know, since then, I would say most, so that was like, you know, supported by the city of Boston. And I think honestly, it went through a little faster because it's really hard to get things done with the city of Boston. I'm sure it is in a lot of cities, but, um, but there was a little bit of pressure for the city for like parks and rec to approve it. And, you know, because I was doing this residency and Marty Walsh was going around talking about the residency and, you know, that's the mayor. Yes, sorry, okay, that's yeah. there. Exactly. So, um, you know, so like, yeah, so there, it was kind of a sweet spot in my career and this, and this program with the city where it's like, you know, they were like, okay, sure, do, do it. And I think they were nervous, like, is she gonna, and then it got actually like a National Public Art Award. Um, and so that's really exciting. Wow. And, you know, so now the city is proud of it, you yeah. know, and that yeah. the court in Dorchester. It did, wow, yeah. It just incredible. got um, Americans for the Arts, yeah, Public Art Award, which, you know, it just makes me feel so amazing. Sure. Um, and so since then, like, most of the other courts have been actually museums, art museums that have a public 
some kind of a public art program, you mm-hmm. know, or a public outreach sort of program, um, either getting a grant or just using some money that they've got to do a court. So the court in Salem was part of the Playtime exhibit and um, the Peabody Essex at the Peabody Essex Museum. Okay. And they, um, yeah, so they commissioned the Salem court, which we call Tormenta on the Concha or Storming the Court. Um, and that's the witch court. That's the um, the one that has sort of a kind of like gender neutral green fierce witch that the kids were really excited um, to put in. Right. <laughs> um, yeah. Can you, ta- and, like, can you talk about days. that? Sorry, you were about to, and yeah. I'm like, can you talk about that? No, but no. Can you, just some of the details of making that court, in particular, in, in a place like Salem that has that's sort of known across the United States for having this particular history, and how you worked right. with that community there. Yeah, I think that's a great question, especially because this is a great example of like coming in with a little bit of an idea, but not being precious about that idea. Because I. I um, have been studying like the history of, uh, you know, witchcraft and magic and such in, in New England for a while. And I like now identify as a witch. And so I was very excited to get to paint something in Witch City. But um, it's both uh, the witch is both a symbol of um, some, you know, real trauma in the city and also like kind of a celebratory mascot you know of sorts that also has become a bit of a tourist you know like it's uh it's presented uh for tourists as well so yeah and and um and like the um the neighborhood um called the point that i was doing the piece in is um is like primarily latinx so there's just like a lot of layers there and like maybe salem in general maybe they're tired of witches maybe a latinx neighborhood doesn't identify with with you know this kind of more like white person version of a witch that you know with where it's like maybe like a a a white lady with a hat on a broomstick or literally that they have a sculpture of samantha from bewitched like in the center oh wow (laughs) interesting (laughs) yeah so i'm like yes i'm like you know yeah yeah i don't know how they feel about this so i'm even though i would love to do that i'm not going to I'm not going to bring that in and force that. And, um, and even the, um, and even the like, uh, sort of like community, there's like a CDC that, um, like kind of owns the land that's there. They were like, do not paint any Halloween imagery. And I was like, okay. Yeah. Even though I love Halloween. (laughs) Um, but then the kids, I was like, you know, what do we want to see? And they were like, a witch. (laughs) Right. And I said, well, okay okay, well, then maybe tell me what a witch looks like. Maybe draw the witch for me so that that way at least we're talking about what what you even mean by that or what you think. And so they're, like, all drawing these different witches. And, you know, most of them are, like, on broomsticks and everything, and that's perfectly fine. It's what they've seen before. But, um, but yeah, we brainstormed, and I did some drawings where the witch was more like this claw that was sort of like this green claw that was kind of grabbing the basketball which was actually a full moon Mm. and we talked about like (laughs) we did drawings of like Michael Jordan jumping in front of the full moon and then like a witch on a broom flying in front of a basketball yeah (laughs) um and yeah and and so we and then like all these eyeballs so we kind of developed it together and it was just really cute and amazing and um again like 
you know, kind of more gender neutral and sort of more about the witch as a force, um, kind of like a mascot, you know. Sure. Um, uh, it's like because I often talk about how mascots are often related to nature in a way or related to something that's like a force or a spirit of the team as opposed to like the logo, mm-hmm. you know, which is more about selling it. So, um, yeah, and then we did I did this sort of like new to full moon basketball moon phase in the um, like where you, you know, where you stand to rebound um, like each of those spots is like a different moon, uh, like a yeah basketball moon phase. And yeah. how did sort of the um, spirituality or your own identification as a witch play into uh, this particular court? Well, um, you know, I feel like my sort of my interest in uh, witches, the identity, the identity as witches and of witches and feeling uh, like that as part of my identity is I would say partially spiritual and partially political. Um, you know, like there's sort of an inherently feminist, um, you know, idea of like reclaiming power that's been taken from you or like when you actually have access to sort of knowledge or practices that challenge the status quo or challenge like a patriarchal system that you are are punished and removed, right? So part of that and I think there's like a resurgence and sort of an interest in witchcraft in general and part of that I think is this kind of feminist reclaiming of power um so sometimes that that's a little bit more the the direction I go and um you know again like I talk to the kids about ways that they feel powerful and how can they feel powerful and what do they value and how do they express those values so in that way I'm not you know I'm not putting the witch um, identity on them, but I'm bringing up those values that I think sure. there um, to see how they relate to it. Um, and, but, you know, I mean, I try to, um, I actually, <laughs> um, I actually bury um, black tourmaline at the corners of the court, which um, is a, like a black crystal that absorbs negative energy and like mm. kind of keeps things safe. Wow. Um, yeah. So I, I usually, when I start a court, I'll, I'll do a little circle. Um, you know, I might burn some herbs or something and just like bless it and just say like, please protect the space. Please bring like positive, like friendly, loving vibes to this space while we work on it. Because, you know, working in communities and in public spaces is complex and you never know like what you're going to get. Right. Um, so I, I'm just like, you know, bring peace to the space, bring create, you know, creativity and um, life to the space, um, protect the space, maybe give us some good weather. Sure, <laughs> yeah. yeah. All of that. And uh, yeah. And then when I leave, I usually take the black tourmaline with me and just also, yeah, like, like thank the space, you know, mm-hmm. um, and ask it to continue to do good for the people that use it you know something like that so so sometimes it'll actually be that literal I've, I've really started thinking about the courts as actually like communicating with or like projecting into the sky as well as something that we can see from from the earth or from the court sure. itself yeah which you know I know I've been just talking and talking but um but I could we did that with the new Bedford court in a really fun way yeah um 
yeah, like we just because New Bedford, uh, the history there also also a dark history. It's the Whaling City. It's what um, Moby Dick was written about. It's the mm. place that Moby Dick was written. And, um, you know, so they're very proud of whales, but similar to Salem being very proud of witches, even though the history, you know, of that story is, is there's a lot of trauma there. Um, and so we thought, you know, how can we give the whales more of a voice here? Like people really celebrate them now, but like, how can we just think about maybe what they want to say? And so we taught the kids, um, just the neighborhood kids, like the nautical flag system, like the semaphore system, because mm-hmm. there's one flag for every letter of the alphabet. And then that was really fun because we got to write simple sentences together, like we spelled our names and nautical flags. And then then I said to them, okay, what do you guys think? We did another chalkboard. What do you think the whales want to tell people in the sky? <laughs> like airplanes or whatever. <laughs> sure, you know? like, yeah. And we, and we also said, you know, whales are as big as a basketball court and they they live so down far down in the ocean. They live just, just as far down in the ocean as, as people fly in the sky, you know, like there's mystery in both. And so, yeah, we said, what do they want to tell? What do the whales want to send into the sky? And it was so cute. They said like, what's up, what's down. Um, yeah. <laughs> and what was the other thing? Oh, shoot. Well, there were a few, there were a sure. few phrases. Yeah. And then, and then we also chose a Melville, a, Mo- a Melville quote from Moby Dick. It's, um, it says, consider them both the sea and the sky. Um, and then we painted, um, we painted, you know, those, those nautical flags into the, into the court. So they have these like secret, these secret messages. (laughs) I love this idea of projecting things from the courts into the sky, just thinking about it as a way of communication. Um, and really this, uh, ongoing idea that basketball is so much bigger than mm-hmm. the game feels so important because those spaces I think for a lot of people can feel like restricted to certain people or you know yeah. certain knowledge um, and all of that so this idea that basketball is so much bigger than just the five people that are playing it at one time or whoever's playing it it just it means much more and it can mean much more if we allow it to and totally I love the idea of using the space for that purpose. Yeah. I mean, I, I've never really said it this way, but it just occurred to me. It's like, it's like we could say that the court is almost like the collective altar of our current time, right? Like it's just such a, it's such a unifying space that people have really strong feelings about. So it's like, if we were going to kind of gather on a space and like, you know, put messages on it or like, you know, to put images on it, like the court, is a good, you know, even if the things I'm painting about are mm-hmm. not like specifically about basketball history, I think it's still appropriate that, um, that using the court is, um, is like a good place to kind of put our collective dreams, right? I mean, hoop dreams. Like, yes. You know, people totally. talk about that. <laughs> well, so two things about that. One is like, I was watching for the first time live coverage of the Iowa caucuses. Um, oh yeah! And everyone, they're all voting for the most part on on basketball courts. So like oh, yeah, that, like oh, dreaming, that like hope for the future is all taking place on a basketball court. And I was just like, ah, oh, these spaces, like I, they're just incredibly um, diverse in how you can use them and think about them. Yeah, no, absolutely. And and I, you know, touched upon that a little bit in the essay as well. Like just talking about how you know they were basketball courts were often used as. Um, 
you know, dance halls right, and everything definitely. as well. And and I love, I mean, this is a little off topic, but I have made a lot of work about tennis as well. And especially like kind of 16th, 17th, 18th century tennis. And, um, you know, the very beginning of the French Revolution started on a tennis court. Like they signed the tennis court oath. Oh, so I, think, I didn't know that. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. That's like David's, David's unfinished painting um, of the tennis court oath was like the very beginning. And, um, you know, it's just, yeah, throughout history, athletic courts have been, and also, I mean, so much uncovered. Well, I mean, so much research I want to do, um, about like, like Aztec sure, um, yes. athletic spaces and right. yeah. And like the spiritual, the spiritual activity there. So yeah, yeah. It's like it's not even right. It's not even that new really to be using to be using athletic spaces in all these different ways. No. Um, I also was thinking about when you said that, you know, you, you choose to not paint, like you think that the paintings matter, even though they don't have to do with basketball. And I actually think they matter more because they don't have to do with basketball (laughs) because we don't really need like basketball on basketball on basketball. Like that, that, (laughs) that's just kind of reiterating to people who are already interested and like kind of reaffirming who that space is for. Whereas when we throw in other uh imagery and other aspects that connect like the circular shape, like what is this, you know, it's like the hoop and the ball and like the, what can we connect to outside of the game? that is so much more powerful than being like James Naismith quote or this, you know, it's like yeah. it, it, and then no shame to James Naismith, like love no, him, no, totally. need him, whatever. Yeah. But it's just, um, there's more value in finding connections that aren't so apparent. Yeah, I think so too. And I have a really like, um, maybe slightly unresolved, uncomfortable, like feeling about, um, like artwork you know whether it's like monuments or paintings but that that like celebrate certain historic figures I mean I I think it's great because I, I think you know we uh, I mean almost like the Catholic saints or whatever you know it's like I love I love that we have these like icons and gods and and people that we like look up to as models and people that we celebrate and and like ancestors in a way that we ask for help and guidance and protection from but I think it can go a little bit overboard with like the worship of certain people and that's also where you get people when someone like Kobe Bryant dies and it's like suddenly instead of mourning or processing processing his death we're deciding well is he a god or is he a demon or like sure it's like it's like yeah it's like we um and, you know, that's where you get, I mean, I, I think we absolutely 100% need more like representation and monuments and images of, um, of like folks of color and women and, and trans folks and people that have not been celebrated throughout history. Right. We have all these like racist white men that were, that we're celebrating. But, yeah. um, but the thing is like, I don't know, like we could make new monuments and those people could be problematic as well when we evolve into the future and realize that like, we're living our lives we're all living in really problematic ways now you know like the way we treat nature is horrible <laughs> like sure. so it's so making new yeah i don't know making new like shrines to individual people i think can be a little slippery like i don't think we shouldn't do it but i it's not what i'm interested in i'd rather i'd rather try and encourage these kids to like think about who they are and who they want to mm-hmm. be and and not just think oh well, like I'm this other person or I'm going to be like this other person or my identity is going to be tied to this other thing that I was told is the thing. So, 
that's another thing. I just, yeah, I don't want to paint like people's faces on the basketball court. Right. Um, yeah, personally. Right. And I think from, from the people that we do admire, we can also think about why we admire them rather than like their physical body and think about sort of what they've done or how they've, what they've contributed that makes us feel so a certain way about them without actually representing like their physical self. Um, yes, yes. Yeah, kind of like using them as like a little bit of a mirror for what for the things that we do like. So I think that's really important. Today's episode of Dear Adam Silver is brought to you by Bookman's. When I think about the conversation I had with Maria for today's podcast, so much of our discussion is about community. And I feel so lucky to partner with a sponsor like Bookman's that cares about community. The shelves at Bookman's are stocked with books, records, and movies, all sold or traded in by residents of the area. They also host a range of events, including tarot card readings, dog adoption days, and Dungeons & Dragons games. Truly something for everyone. For more information, please visit www.bookmans.com. And remember, Bookman's has cool covered. So let's also get into new craft artisan action. Yeah. Also known as NCAA. I want to read a little bit from your manifesto, if that's okay, okay. just to warm yeah, up please. and get into the conversation. Yeah, um, thank you. Now is the time for spectators to leave the sidelines and reinsert themselves into a growing network of disciplines that both rub elbows with and rustle the feathers of sport. As politics and business interests place backcourt pressures on basketball, perhaps a straightforward creative solution, however left field it seems, could liberate and rehabilitate the game's integrity and originality, filling a void where it counts the most. Newcraft Artists in Action occupies the hoops. By way of simple DIY and craftist meditation, we respond to cultural boredom and urban neglect, creative suppression, and social repression. Ah! So good, yes. It feels great hearing you read it. Oh, well, I just, it it really just, um, I mean, I kind of was pulling different paragraphs and putting them together, um, and it just, it's just quite impactful. And I was just wondering, first of all, where the idea for New Craft Artists in Action, how that, how that kind of just like started, and then also how this manifesto came to be in this very succinct, eloquent way, or, or why you felt the manifesto was necessary earlier in our conversation I started making these basketball nets just I was just trying to learn how to crochet but I didn't I didn't really know how and I still to this day I've never made like a sweater or a sock I've literally only made basketball nets and some other weird objects but um sure it's yeah like the net was the most familiar to me so I was just like okay this is a thing I can understand this is like a piece of fiber art that just feels relevant to my life um and you know, and like I, I got a little show with a gallery called that, that existed at the time, a really great uh, local artist-run gallery in, in uh, Cambridge, in Boston, Cambridge, called Meme. And I was like, I think I'm just gonna launch this project. This like what what I was actually calling Maltini Networks because my last name is Maltini. But I was like, man, I want to have workshops. Like I want this show to be engaging because um, the show was kind of like a classroom and an art show and a workshop space and a social space. It was kind of a hybrid. Again, I think it was, yeah, it was in 2010. And so it was kind of when some of the more social practice conversations were budding. And um, and I was like, but I don't know. I can't teach someone how to do these things. Like, I, I'm not good enough at mm-hmm. knit or crochet. So 
I called a couple of my friends, um, Andrea Cheryl Evans and um, Taylor McVeigh, who are both incredible artists that have their own. I mean, they, they make a lot of work with like fiber and sewing and drawing. And I mean, they make all kinds of amazing work. Um, uh, Andrea is now teaching at, um, at Micah and uh, Taylor still lives in Massachusetts and has um, this amazing business called Blueprints for Sewing. She like makes sewing patterns that are based on architecture. And wow. anyway, so they're, I just have to, you know, I can't say Yes, that, like, shout them out. They are, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there's so many, there's so many people over the years that have worked with NCAA. So I will try and get as many names out as I can. Um, but yeah, so, they, but they were like the first two and I was like, can you help me, um, do these workshops? And they did. And I was so grateful. And, um, you know, we just had like a lot of quick interest and people started emailing me cause we, I made the blog and, um, people started e- emailing me being like, how do we make these nets? And I was like, I don't know how to tell you, like, right. <laughs> even if you're with me, I like, don't know how to tell you. So I was like, oh, we've got to find a way to make this this um like teachable or whatever um mm-hmm. shareable uh open sourced uh because also as I was thinking about it I'm like yeah I could make nets till I'm blue in the face and put them up and I love doing that but this isn't I want people to make nets for their own neighborhood like I want people to make nets that they will play on that they will take care of or that right. you know will express their interests so this isn't about like me g- also like going into other people's neighborhoods and like inserting something that maybe they don't want. So, Mm -hmm. so we, um, so I was like, well, let's, you know, like, let's actually rename this and make this a collective. So we batted around a bunch of really fun, punny ideas. And we came to, yeah, NCAA, New Craft Artists in Action. And, um, and so, yeah, you could say like the three of us were kind of the first collective. And then we decided we were going to make a zine and um, we made these really fun, elaborate Rizzo printed um, calls for for patterns, um, for basketball net patterns. And I mean, I like talk about, we've talked about reaching out, right? Like reaching out to people that you don't know. I mean, sure. I sent those everywhere. I sent them all over the country to like galleries and craft centers and like schools. And I just mailed them to people. Um, and you know, and then some of the local responses I got, um, like from uh, Samantha Fields, who is also an incredible artist. Um, she, she's all she's all all kinds of an artist, but she's incredible with like every form of craft I've ever wanted to mm. do. Um, she um, has taught at MassArt and um, the museum school for a long time. Um, and Kara Kubal was another local Boston artist, and she was uh, in grad school trying to, uh, write about like, um, feminist anarchy. And so she was like a super rad addition and, um, like just a bunch of other, well, I met, uh, my friend Mallory, uh, Biggs, um, Biggins, we met at Occupy actually. So this was also all happening right when, um, Occupy had formed and I was involved in like Occupy Boston. So we did also some like craft gatherings as part of Occupy and yeah, it just started growing. And then the zine like became a book and to, cause it was just getting more, more and more interesting. And we were, people were, you know, hanging nets all over the country. And then it's a wild long story, but we got invited to do this, um, this project in the Philippines um, by someone who's now a great friend and collaborator, um, Clara Balaguer, who has like a, like a print, um, 
like a press called um, Hardworking Good Looking. Um, and, you know, we, we did that. So, so we just had all these, and, and Hazel Meyer, I, I, I mentioned yesterday, Hazel Meyer is an incredible artist in Canada who had also like macrameed some of her own nets as sculptures and had a lot of similar interests. And so, you know, I'm sure I'm like shamefully leaving some, some names out, but, um, but just meeting all these amazing artists. And so right. people submitted, um, submitted designs and patterns and uh, some friends of mine from undergrad that were in a design collective called Golden Arrows um, helped us design the book. And so it looks really nice. And yeah, I just kind of like had been doing all this research and I was like, I kind of want to write about like what this is supposed to be. And um just had all these different ideas because, you know, like there's also some blurbs in there about Jane Jacobs and I've been interested in architecture and urban planning in the past. So, um, so, you know, I write a little bit about like urban planning, a bit about recreation, a bit about feminism, a bit about race. Um, and then, you know, kind of conclude with talking about like Occupy and politics and how, um, you know, a lot of like, you know, a lot of quotes from Dave, Dave Zirin, Dave Zirin, however he says it. Um, yeah, I don't I think I just I think I just really wanted something to put the whole project in context, you know. Um especially because you know, um I don't I don't know whether we we identify as like yarn bombers, but you know, I I like the knitted I like the knitted graffiti movement to an extent. Like I like the ways in which it's pushing back on a slightly more male dominated history of graffiti. Mm -hmm. I like that it's more anonymous and collective. Um but um, I just wanted to be clear that our goals here were like compl complex and fierce and sure, <laughs> researched yes. and um, kind of make a case for how we think all of this, this fiber work is also connected, like really connected to basketball and its roots and all of this. So, yeah, so I just like wrote this essay and I, I'm just so grateful that you read it. <laughs> <laughs> So I want to read another part of it, but I also first want to make yeah. sure that we touch on what you mentioned about not wanting to go into other people's neighborhoods and be like, yes. here's this yeah. thing. Don't you need this? Or can I make this place yeah. better or whatever it is? And I think right. that that was white, the white savior industrial complex. <laughs> right. And like I so I think that I um, and I've talked about this before a little bit on the podcast, but I when I first started collecting nets like that, what I was doing was driving around looking for hoops that had nets that were no longer functioning and then wherever that net right. was I was like leaving a flyer in someone's mailbox or going to talk to the principal at the school and seeing if I could oh, cool. trade them out but I wasn't so I it was also like if there was no net on the hoop I wasn't going to do anything because then there it wasn't a trade if that makes sense oh, so okay. it felt really important yeah, to me because I was going into other people's neighborhoods that like I was making it clear that like I need something from you and can I provide this in, in exchange for that rather than being okay. like oh like um look at this sad net like how can I fix it you know being like mm -hmm. this this net actually has like this broken you know rusted sometimes uh tore up net has a lot of value to me what can I do to get it um but I still felt like but but based exactly what you're saying I still felt like I don't know if I want my to just like come in and then go out and that to be like the interaction I have with these places that I'm not a part of on a day-to-day -day basis um, so I'm still trying to figure out kind of how to 
and and like what is the and I think I I my dream was like that maybe I could like send nets out in the mail and then like people would just mm-hmm. send me back nets from there if they chose to trade them out or whatever yeah, it was like that yeah, people yeah, yeah. eventually would just like send me old nets from nets that they'd taken down in their own and I also I have this like weird obsession with the mail I absolutely love mail so this yeah, idea oh, of bringing totally. mail yeah. into the into the work yes. was like just another form of passing like in basketball this exchange and like that I think of the USPS as this like giant court of passing Um, (laughs) amazing so I just I I wanted I think by the end of collecting all those nets in Baton Rouge I was like I don't know if I if I need to be the person because sometimes it felt like I want to be in this place I want to be setting up this ladder I want to be unhooking the net and other Mm -hmm. times it was like it, this isn't about me. This is about sort of in, engagement. And if it can have the same result, then I don't know if I if I need to be the one who's there um, as far yeah. as like getting nets and, and replacing them. So, yeah, I just think yeah, it's a tricky dynamic yeah. because it, it's like this wonderful – my boyfriend and I, before I started collecting them in Baton Rouge, my boyfriend and I had taken a trip, uh, a road trip, and like we, every place we stopped to get gas, we'd look for – like shitty nets like that's the oh word isn't it it's so fun like you just <laughs> yeah. you can't you have like a third eye for it now. totally <laughs> and like instead yeah. of getting like a postcard or snow globe or a keychain from that place like we would try and get a net and um that felt like a really great way to kind of interact with a place i didn't know um as a tourist but I think that when you are living in a place day to day and because of the way that that city set up like Baton Rouge in particular was is a very divided city along racial lines and economic lines like left over from from like times of segregation like extreme white flight like all of this stuff so Mm -hmm. I think that it was almost more problematic when this was taking place in the place that the city that I lived in because the, the neighborhoods that I sometimes was going into, and I mean, I was really trying to go everywhere, but like they w- most of them were places that I wouldn't have gone without like this project. And so then it comes back to this idea right, of like, right. what do I do on a day-to-day basis? How do I interact with places on a day-to-day basis rather just than when I'm making art? Um, and so it's quite tricky and it's quite, and I think it goes back to the complications of social practice and effective mm-hmm, social practice mm-hmm. versus kind of um, popping in, <laughs> changing out a few mm-hmm. nets, packing it up. So I feel like it was almost more effective for me to do that as a tourist than it was when I was living in a place that yeah. had so many divisions. Yeah, yeah. And that's true. And it's like, or it's just interesting. It's it's really interesting to hear your process because I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm just always curious, like how people decide to go about it. Because like, I think partially because we were a a little bit connected to like maybe like a a yarn bombing vibe or Mm -hmm. something it was kind of like not that we always did it in the night but it was more like a stealth surprise like the elves have dropped off sure (laughs) yes crazy colorful net you know and it was kind of um although you know although it really wasn't that stealth I mean usually I would that that's a thing is usually I would show up and there'd be people playing and that was like a huge part of it and that was cool like and I'd be like obviously if there were people there it'd be like do you do y'all like this do you want it <laughs> you know <laughs> <Right>. and um <laughs> you know and they usually did and maybe they did because I asked them you know I don't know but like um and like there were times even when like there was one time when I made a net and for some reason I like needed a photo of it and it wasn't finished or I was mailing it to a show or something so I really just went to a court to put it up to take a photo and had to take it down 
and there were all these kids playing and they were like man like why are you taking it down yeah. and I was like well I'm like I'm not ready to let go of it yet and I was like well do you want me to make you one and they were like yeah and so I like took their color requests mm, and then I did yeah you know and just brought it back and you know and it, but it that was like organic like it, you know that's not necessarily how the project always went um and I think you know, I think each each kind of project, each social practice artist or whatever kind of figures out what works and what doesn't in that way. Definitely. Like, yeah, I mean, but I think for me, staying organic is just really important because, yeah, one thing is not going to work for the same, for like for every site, you know, one approach no. isn't going to work for every site. And like, also one bad experience, you know, um, you know, talk about like, I don't know, like what? frailty or something it's like one bad experience doesn't mean like the whole like the whole project is bad and should never happen again like you know you can take yeah you adjust um, you can tweak and you can adjust yeah and you can apologize if you need to or whatever you know um yeah there's just it's it's complicated and also I mean you know I mean in your in your case like I think it's interesting that you were working on this exchange because that is part of your like that was the work, you know, part of it was like, that was your process. Um, but it's like, how, how mad are people really going to be at like putting up an, I mean, I mean, I think people could be more, um, respond more strongly to, to my nuts because they are like expressive and colorful mm. and sometimes feminine. And, and that is actually the only, for the most part, the only pushback that we've gotten, and in some cases it was not, it was like pretty bad. It, it was, it's homophobic actually. Mm. Um, yeah. When we, when we very, very first started painting um, the first court in Dorchester, I mean, of like the hundreds of people we talked to that were really excited about it and like clapping when they walk by or whatever, asking about it. There was one person who, um, like he said he was from the public school system in Boston and we still don't really even know if that's true or what, but, but he actually did come down and, and kind of start because we just put a few colors down. I mean, it was just like, we put a few colors. Um, and he was like, you know, this looks like a homosexual hidden agenda and you're like feminizing our young boys and hiding gay messages in the court. <laughs> You know, like, oh my god, it was intense. Yeah, and actually, yeah. it sucked because I it was like one moment that I've been gone. Actually, I I try to always be there because I have to take responsibility. You know, sure. for everything. But I like it was like I had to go get a bucket of paint or something, and I was just gone for like fifteen minutes. And and two of my um, uh, two of my friends who are trans were working on the court at the time. Mm. You know, and I mean, they just like laughed honestly. But but you know, I was like worried and protective of them you know and like of course and, my, and myself I mean I'm queer um but yeah and I mean you know we just sh like they just showed him the drawings and we're like look um you know we're working from these drawings these are the things the kids drew and like some of them might be gay but we're we haven't really been talking about that very much to be honest like yeah that's drawing. not that's yeah. not our agenda here <laughs> yeah and I mean yeah, I mean, it's not the worst if there are some teen programs. That, I mean, it's great if there of are course. programs to support queer teens. But um, but anyways, yeah. So we were just like, look, we're drawing from their drawings. Um, whatever he left. But so sometimes that happens. So we have so we have gotten some homophobic responses. But ultimately, what I'm saying is that 
in some ways it's something you put tons and tons and tons of labor on, in into and then you are just sort of letting it go and so we also kind of hope that maybe that labor and active trust is is um sends a little bit of a message as well yeah um but yeah but totally always just like always thinking about these questions and like the white savior industrial complex and taking taking critiques and adjusting the process and for sure like do do we as like non-trained sort of people who are outside of the traditional sports world how can we contribute to making it better and mm-hmm. by better like more ethical more mm-hmm. more um diverse more diverse more aware okay so the more diverse i'm actually going to read this beautiful paragraph um right. from the uh ncaa manifesto or ncw ncaa manifesto yeah, yeah, we hope to revive basketball's original expression of the mind, body, and spirit in a way that exposes and criticizes its relationship to segregation, commodification, and bullying. In particular, we hope to empower team players who have been warming the bench for too long, such as feminists, queer-identified, and creative-minded people. May craftsmanship and sportsmanship reconvene in the middle to reactivate public spaces and redefine a role for transdisciplinary recreation in society. <laughs> Damn, I'm Maria. good with run-on sentences. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you definitely have me. Um, yeah, that is like a serious mouthful but it's it it it's everything like that is the everything you know it's like we want to we we think this is worthwhile here are the problems with it here's who we think should be involved and here's what's going to happen like it just it's it's so important i think yes like who is contributing who gets to contribute who gets to offer their ideas and um like i was saying before i just think that like art between art and sports it's like they're we're more powerful when we when we put them together like we're all more empowered when we realize there's a connection there and that um that that there it's worth uh looking at them both with the same critical eye yeah yeah totally yeah I mean it's just like yeah you can like life is complex and you can you can be having both conversations like right yeah and I think I mean it's just like you know, this could be its own whole podcast, but you know, it's, it's like the problem with binary, binary thinking, right? It's yes. Just, everything's black and white or good or evil or whatever, you know, and like when someone has died, they're either like, yeah, like a God or, you know, or like someone to be ashamed of. I mean, it's just like, it's all just like very complex. Um, and I think we have to, I think we're starting to, I think like, I mean, also who's we, but you know, it's just people are, people are starting to have more complex conversations um, about all of these things. Yeah. I mean, we're having to, as, as we become so polarized, like at least in the United States, but also all over the world, it's like, we're having to just be, be more willing to, to work with complexity and, like maybe not so much sort of binary thinking. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Yes. So we got through a lot. Yeah. Thank you so much for coming thank, on the podcast. Thank you. Yes. This was real, a real treat. And I'm so glad that I, cause I had known about your work before and that I just sort of 
refound you. And now it's like, wow, this was meant to be. So thanks so much for sharing so much about your process and um, all that goes into your work. I really appreciate it. Oh, thank you so much. It's it's just so great. Um, yeah, to find other people working in similar ways. Cool. We'll talk soon. Thank you, Maria. Okay. Take yeah, care. Thank you. Okay. Bye. Bye.